Last week, at the end of Revelation chapter 6, we were face to face with the final judgment. In the sixth seal, the old creation was trembling and passing away, and every class of men was hiding from the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It turns out, however, that the end is not yet. And this is a literary feature of the seven seals and the seven trumpets. They run you right up to the end. Then they back off and you get an interlude. And the interlude explains some crucial things that are happening to the church and in her life in the midst of the unfolding judgments. So, you might recall last week we said that the the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, there's seven of each of them, they all have a sort of four plus three pattern. And I want to tweak that a little bit today. We can say that the seals have a four plus two plus one structure, or more precisely, it's four plus two plus an interlude plus one. That's how the seals are arranged. Four plus two plus a delay or a pause plus one. And this passage functions as the dramatic pause before the seventh, the climactic and final seal. So this is a delay in the action. And it wants to show us What is happening behind the scenes as the seal judgments are poured out in the earth? In the life of the church. Now, this passage here has a second function. You'll remember that at the end of chapter 6 last week, right at the very end of the chapter, the unbelieving world asked a question. It's one of the great questions that we have to ask. In the great day of judgment, who can stand? Who can stand before the wrath of God? This passage here, indeed all of chapter 7, is an answer to that question. And so we'll look at it under three headings. They're there in your uh, outline. the, The four angels, the four angels, the seal, and the 144,000. First, then, the the four angels. John sees four angels, the text says, standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Four, we have said, is the number of the whole world. And you see that clearly here. Four angels, four corners of the earth, four winds of the earth. And so these four angels, they're holding back The judgments, which will flow and have already started to flow from the four horsemen. We looked at the four horses last week. And so again, we've moved back from the end. We are not at the end. We're in the interlude. And the interlude covers the whole period of the church's life till the end. And the angels, the text tells us in verse 2, have been given power to harm the land and the sea. 
in verse 1, they hold back the four winds so that no wind might blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Which, of course, might strike you as odd, giving the cataclysms that have already been poured out on the earth in the six seals. And the point here is simply that the judgments which have been unleashed and have already started are here seen to be restrained. Right? In history, it ebbs and flows. There are seasons and they're all under God's sovereign hand. The devastating effects of conquest and war and famine and pestilence have not yet been fully released on creation. The God who sovereignly pours out judgments also sovereignly restrains them. Same with the ebb and flow of the providential events which pour into our lives and then leave. They all are under this hand, which both judges and restrains. And the the reason for this restraint... Why are the judgments, which last week led us right up to the final judgment, why are they now restrained? And that brings us to the second point, which is the seal. John sees another angel, a fifth angel, ascending from the east, from the rising of the sun. This angel is a harbinger of grace, a representative of Christ, who is the day spring from on high, the one who arises with healing in his wings. And this angel has the seal of the living God. Probably something like a giant stamp, a giant signet ring. And he cries out with a loud voice to the four angels saying, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. The judgments are restrained so that this seal can be administered. I'd like to unpack this seal a little bit. First, notice this. There's a pun here. There's a pun on the idea of seals. Right? In chapter 6, seals unleash destructive judgments on the earth. Here, seals protect believers. Believers are sealed as the earth experiences the seals. And based on Ezekiel 9, this this seal imagery is drawn from a number of places. One of them is Ezekiel 9. There the righteous are sealed on their foreheads before the destruction of Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C. by Babylon. And the seal signifies then divine ownership. It's God's way of authenticating His servants, of marking them as genuine. Even as slaves were branded by their owners, the saints are branded, if you will, marked out, owned as servants of the living God by this seal. It's like an official certification, a stamp. And so the seal, it turns out, is going to stand in stark contrast to the mark of the beast. The beast marks his followers. He doesn't seal them because they're exploited and they're destroyed and they're not protected. 
but the Lord seals his saints. And this divine ownership comes with protection. However, it's not protection from tribulation. Right? The point of the seal is that no spiritual harm, no spiritual harm falls on those who have the seal of God on their forehead. We'll see throughout this book that they can and are killed, but they are sealed nonetheless. It's this seal then, which enables the church to persevere through the seals of chapter 6 and all the coming judgments of the book. This seal means then that the church is not saved from tribulation or trial or hardship, but saved from the wrath of God and the Lamb on the throne that was vividly on display in this text. That's the great question. How can we stand in that day? This seal is the answer. It allows us to answer that question, that terrified question at the end of chapter 6. Who can stand? And John here now receives the answer from heaven. The sealed servants of God, they alone can and they shall stand on that day. And so the seal then, to summarize this, In accordance with the whole rest of the New Testament, the seal is the Holy Spirit promised to you in your baptism. The Spirit places the name of God and the Lamb on us. Throughout the New Testament, the Spirit promised in baptism is called the seal. And this means all the overcomers, all the faithful, all the servants of God are sealed. You are sealed. And that seal is why you'll be able to stand in the great day and in the trials and tribulations that lead up to that great day. There are only two kinds of people in this book, in Revelation. Those with this seal and those with the mark of the beast. All the residents of the heavenly city are sealed. The residents of Babylon are marked by the beast. So, the third point here is the 144,000, a number which generates a lot of interest, I have found. So, in, uh, in verse 4, John, here's the number of those sealed. 144,000 is the number of those sealed from all the tribes of Israel. So, I want to start by saying what this number is not. It's not ethnic Israel in some future tribulation. And it's not a Christian remnant of ethnic Jews. Now, I've just affirmed it. The defense lies in looking at the nature of this company of people. So I'm going to make two sub-points here. One is the number itself, and the second is the tribes, the list of tribes. The number and the tribes. This is under the the third point of the 144,000. So first, the number. 144,000, like virtually all the numbers in Revelation, is a symbolic number. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. And this almost surely evokes the 12 Old Testament tribes, 
The 12 apostles as the foundation of the church times 1,000, which is a number of fullness, completion, quantitative fullness. The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills does not mean that the cattle on the 1,000th and first hill are not his. The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills means he owns all the cattle on every conceivable hill. A thousand is a number of quantitative fullness. So 144,000 is the number of the fullness of the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. They are the ones who have been sealed. By the way, a simple reading of what a seal is given by the Spirit in the New Testament would lead you to the conclusion that all believers through all time are sealed. So, by the way, this reading of the number is confirmed by the use of these numbers at the end of the book in chapter 21 where we see the New Jerusalem, the city of God descending. That city has 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on them. It also has 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb on them. The city is also a perfect square. The length, the same as the width. And guess what it's measured at? 12,000 stadia. The city is 12 times 1,000 on each side. The walls of the city, they're 144, 12 times 12 cubits. Again, 12 times 12. The whole city, and by the way, it's not literally a city. You are the city of God. It's a symbolic depiction of the Jerusalem from above, which is our mother. I remember a few years ago, someone brought me a picture of the dimensions of the New Jerusalem from the book of Revelation and showed me how much of middle America it would take up on a map. Now, this is a common sort of thing. It happens all the time. People do it on television. But it's fundamentally misguided. So the city is 144 cubits on the wall, 12 by 12. So it is a picture of the fullness of God's city, God's temple, God's saints. It's simply a way of designating the whole people of God. Not simply a Jewish subset of the people of God. And this is perfectly consistent with what we've already seen in Revelation. Where the church has been called kings and priests. And has been depicted as the Israel of God. So the 144,000 then. 12,000 from each tribe. As you can see there in verses 5-8. through Is a picture of the whole church. And that brings us to the second subpoint: the tribes. This, this list of tribes here has long baffled interpreters, and for good reason. There are, if, depending on how you count, there are some 18 to 20 lists of the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. 18 to 20, and this list given here doesn't match any of them. It's important to see that. This is a strange list, but it contains a few clues. Here's a couple of the idiosyncrasies of the list. Judah is first, not Reuben, the firstborn. The list contains Joseph. 
who is almost always replaced by his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, in lists of the tribes. Manasseh is here, Ephraim's missing. Levi, who's usually absent since the Levites had no land inheritance, Levi is in the list. And Dan, who's usually present, is absent altogether. You have that? You got all that? It's a strange list, matching no other list. Now, the order here cannot be, or at least to this point has not been fully satisfactorily explained. But that, fortunately, does not prevent us from understanding the significance of the list. First, notice this about the list. The, uh, the risen Christ has already been introduced in the book as the lion of the tribe of Judah, just in the previous chapter. And so it's only fitting that Judah be listed first. And that tips us off right away that these are the people of the Davidic Messiah, the Messianic King. Judah's first and Benjamin, the other southern tribe, is last. And they both have the words, were sealed. And they enclose the whole list within the southern territory where the Davidic monarchy resided. So the list is stylistically trying to tell us this is about the people who follow the Davidic lion who conquered in in chapter 5. And secondly, this is a numbering of the new Israel, and that means this is a census. And censuses mean only one thing. They mean an army is being assembled and prepared for holy war. This is the Davidic Messianic army assembled for holy war. Which is just another image for the way the church appears repeatedly in the book of Revelation. And if it's a holy war, it's only fitting that the Levites, the holy separated people, be included. Dan is excluded probably for the same reasons that Manasseh is excluded. They're associated with idolatry at various parts of the Old Testament. And so their absences in the list are saying there are no idolaters in this company. Now, you might remember in the book of Numbers when Israel's in the wilderness, they were numbered and then they camped around the tent with Judah in the primary position. So Israel goes into battle led ultimately by her king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so what's going on here, big picture? As Israel was numbered as an army to conquest for the conquest of the land, so here she is numbered as an army for her coming conquest and possession of the new heavens and the new earth. And so this is a picture of the church militant, of the Lord's army, the holy company that includes all the martyrs from chapter 6, all the martyrs that shall ever be together with all the faithful witnesses. They are the sealed. These saints here, though they be killed, are protected and sealed and they will stand on the day of the wrath of the Lamb. So let me conclude with a couple of applications. First, as mentioned here, God, through the four angels, delays the end. That's very important. God does not wish any to perish. 
But he patiently and he sovereignly waits for every martyr to be slain. For all of his faithful witnesses to be gathered and to be sealed. And this means that the woes, the woes of chapter 6, the judgments of history, cannot sever you. They cannot sever you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's part of what it means to be sealed here. And if that's so, then we can be assured that in the midst of our own hardships and heartaches, your trials, painful, even incomprehensible, they're designed for your good. In the eye of the storm, the sealed friends of God suffer no permanent harm. And so this is a text which should stir us up, help us to recall, cling to, assert, confirm your baptism and what it entails. You have to remind yourself, as Luther did repeatedly, I am baptized into Jesus Christ. I bear his name. I'm marked. I'm sealed. I'm branded. I must authenticate that. I've received the Spirit. His name, his very, the name of his city is branded on your forehead. This is why Paul can say that the seal is the guarantee of your inheritance. It's a guarantee. It means for you, you're being baptized into Christ. Literally, as it meant for the martyrs, that you are invincible. Unable to be conquered is what that word means. Because you're sealed by the one who has conquered. In all of your weakness and frailty, in all of our foibles and blindness, we are invincible with this seal. It means you are kept, kept by the power of God for a salvation which is ready to be revealed in these last days. This lacks a certain sharpness for us, perhaps, because we are not, in our age particularly, much terrified by the scene at the end of chapter 6. It's not like we're going around saying, who can stand in the great and terrible day of the wrath's lamb? Our Jesus is completely unthreatening. But John sees this great day. He sees this wrath. And because he sees it, this seal is a great comfort. It means that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the head of the army, because he is also, he is also a slaughtered lamb, he has delivered you from that judgment of that day, that terrifying scene at the end of chapter 6. That scene is for you who are sealed the day of salvation. Because he, the slaughtered lamb, is now standing, you too shall stand on that day. That's the great question, beloved. How shall I stand on that day? There's no conversion. There's no repentance. There's no renewal. There's no progress without some sense of the sharpness of that day provoking us 
to flee to Christ who has sealed us. And this means, finally, that your life is lived under this seal. Whether you're changing diapers, or washing the dishes, or cutting the grass, or just plodding through another boring Tuesday at work. I had years of those at IBM. I used to count how many more Tuesdays until I either retire or die. You're just grinding it out. You and your life are in this army. This text is saying you're in this army. And thus, whatever the task, no matter how ordinary or base, you're called to militant witness. Right, you're called, the, the, book is, the whole book is about being a faithful witness as Jesus was a faithful witness. But there is a militant edge to this witness because you're assembled in an army and you're at war. You're called to conquer, of course not by physical means, but by grace, by the Spirit. You're called to conquer as a member of the army of the Davidic line as one of the 144,000. He who has an ear... Let him hear the voice of the Spirit by which he has been sealed. Amen.